welcome to episode 432 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with... Andrew Swafford. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about movies that we saw this week in part one. Uh, a lot of, I think, all new releases. All, all new, new releases. releases. We're getting hip with the zeitgeist. <laughs> and uh, and then in part two, we're going to be continuing our Ernst Lubitsch series with 1942's To Be or Not To Be. A great movie. Awesome movie. All right. Podcast is over, y'all. <laughs> um, but yeah. Got a lot. I got a lot of new stuff. Um, a couple of these. So not a couple of these. One of the movies we're going to talk about. We saw at TIFF, and we got all those mm-hmm. TIFF review guys on the website. So go over to the website, and, and we won't we won't reveal it. It'll be a surprise. But you know, you'll get to that part, and you'll be like, oh, I know that one. A mystery, perhaps. Yeah, where stuff comes out. It's like clue. For those detectives in the audience. Yeah. If yeah. you can if you figure it out, comment yeah. below. <laughs> like and subscribe. <laughs> Alright, whatever. Um speaking of mysteries, the first movie I got for us is Confess Fletch. Um, this is like a remake of the Fletch movies with Chevy Chase. Um, except that Oh, it's a remake? I thought it was like a continuation. I don't know, I don't give a shit. Um, <laughs> I don't I have any. I, I don't really care. Any of them, so. uh, this one stars though John Hamm. So they were like, let's find somebody who's, you know, attractive and funny and not a total asshole like Chevy Chase. Um, that was the big change. And uh, Fletch is like, I don't really know how to describe him. He's like a detective, but was also like a investigative journalist. And so like they hire him so. I don't know. Maybe there's a whole Fletch back, you know, backstory I'm missing from the from the oh, 1980s I that I should watch, but don't care. So, seems like such an odd thing to uh, to bring back into the cultural zeitgeist. I think it's a strong dad movie from the 80s. Like I think I think even though the dads were younger, the young dads really latched on to Fletch, and it's like. It's like, yeah, that's that's one. Though this one was marketed in probably one of the worst ways possible in that nobody knew this came out, and then it just kind of dropped. And moral of the story is it's pretty fun, though. I liked it, actually. It's it's a, it's a, it's a nice little movie. Um, so who gives a shit who fletches? Uh, John Hamm. He, he needs should. to confess. He needs to confess. Um, so you meet you meet our, 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 our dashing... Our dashing detective Fletch, um, he goes to this uh, this this townhouse, this condo in uh, Boston, Massachusetts, and uh, when he gets there, he like sees like a note and stuff, and he's like, "Oh, that's interesting." Like he's he's gonna be staying at this place, and then he goes into another room and just sees this woman's dead body just lying there. So then, you know, he calls the cops, and the cops immediately see him as the prime suspect of the person who murdered this woman because it was in his the condo that he was renting. And then it backs up a little bit, a little flashback, and he's in uh, he's in Italy with just this obnoxiously attractive woman played by Lorenza Izzo, which then I was thinking about our Eli Roth discussion from a few weeks ago, and I'm like, how the fuck did Eli Roth pull 
Lorenza Izzo because she's absurdly attractive. Is that not also true for John Hamm? He's also he's kind of he's he's kind of like he's got like this like you know like like old hot like Gary Cooper James Stewart like just kind of like this suave like this suave well put together dad energy that you're kind of like yeah I could see why you'd want to fuck him um I get it and so uh, anyway so they start they they start banging and she also hires him to find like this stolen art. Uh, collection from her like super rich father and you have like you know so you have like his father or her father and then you have her father's new wife who's played by marcia uh gay harden who's also italian which is kind of strange but whatever um and so it's this all just like this random kind of mystery where Fletch is just like walking around and like a button down with jeans and just kind of putting his hands in his pocket and she's like, oh, well, this is a, this is a whole caper. <laughs> um, and so the uh, Roy Wood Jr. is playing the um, the detective that's <clears throat> uh, watching Fletch uh, in this murder case. He also uh, is dealing with this uh, professor slash art dealer played by Kyle MacLachlan, who's like a um, who's like a germaphobe also. And it's always <laughs> nice to see Kyle MacLachlan. A germaphobic professor slash art dealer is a, a great of, role for Kyle MacLachlan, right? And he's, he's super fun in it. Like he just kind of he's having a good time. But. Oh, and then also John Slattery shows up, so shout out to Mad Men. And you have like one scene where John Hamm and John Slattery are like getting a beer because John Slattery is like this ex or this newspaper editor that worked with Fletch. And it's great. Like they are immediately like, b- like bouncing off each other. It's fun. Um, I didn't do a good job of this, but I, I mean, I did my best job at, at describing the plot because it is, it's just kind of like, it's very kind of just like rolling rolling with the waves you know this isn't this isn't like knives out like this isn't agatha christie like it's not trying to like go oh let's connect all these like pieces it's very just very like laid back and it's kind of almost like okay like the crime kind of happened and they solved it and it's like all right well let's you know it's thursday now see ya (laughs) um and i appreciated that (laughs) Um, it's directed by the guy who did, um, it was a, is it just, it's adventure, adventure land, super bad, uh, day trippers, oh. um, Greg Matola. Um, it's kind of, but it's nice. Like John Hamm's like, very, like, this is finally like a movie role where he just kind of is very comfortable and is able to like be funny, but not like over the top funny and then be kind of like, you know engaging without or not have to like he, every time i see him in a movie he's like trying to overact and you're like dude um and this one he's very like natural in it um you get all these kind of like goofy characters who show up like at one point fletch is um interviewing uh this neighbor of the guy who owns the condo who he's staying at um and the neighbor is played by uh annie mamolo from bridesmaids and just the entire time she's just like the epitome of chaos energy and like she's like like 
lighting pans on fire and like it's just like those fires like erupting in her apartment and like glasses <laughs> breaking and like she's like touching near the glass at one point she's like cutting stuff and like cuts part of her finger off and just goes, oh and like or no not cuts part of her, she cuts her hand and so then her hand is just like streaming with blood and he's Wait, like oh. what what level yeah. of reality are we operating on in this movie i was under the impression it was very grounded <laughs> It's kind of grounded, but it's also just like manic to a degree. Um, and no, it's great. And she's like cutting stuff in her hand, and her hand is just bleeding. And she's just like continuing to like tell this innate, you know asinine story to Fletch while she's like wrapping her hand up and shit. Um, it's just like I don't know. I like appreciated how un um, unambitious this movie was. <laughs> For like all like like how much people love like the puzzle box mysteries, this is like the antithesis of that, and uh, I enjoyed it. Um, and like I said, I got this. I, I liked staring at Lorenza Izzo. She's really hot, and uh, John Hamm's super fun. And that's Confess Fletch. I think it's a fun time. Did that- you enjoy it more than the uh, the mysterious unnamed mystery we will talk about later? No, but it, that, you know, like I said, it's different things. Yeah. It's this one's very. I think this one for like a movie that got tossed on VOD. That I don't think again nobody really asked for a Fletch continuation <laughs> remake or whatever. Like for all of those those things, like it's a pleasant surprise. You're like, oh, this is not as bad as what you would think it is. I wonder if Greg Matola grew up watching the Fletch movies. And he was just like, yeah, I want to make one of those. That's a good way of describing it. Matt Lynch on on Letterboxd, Diet Soderbergh. It's Diet Soderbergh. <laughs> What's the platform it's on? Um, I watched it uh, by pirating it. <laughs> but uh, it's on VOD. It seems like one that'll be on like a Hulu or something at some point. It'll be it'll be on all the streamings, all the streamings soon. And so when it is, all the streamings. It is, like if you see it, it's it's it, you could spend the worst hour and forty minutes like this next movie that I'm talking about. Yeah, the let's get into it. Um, so the menu is uh, directed by Mark Malad. He's known for directing television, which if you watch this movie, you can tell. Um, <laughs> uh, he's directed episodes of Game of Thrones and Succession, and what's the other what's the other TV show he directed? Oh, this is just this is just movies. He directed Ollie G, I guess. He directed What's Your Number with Anna Ferris and Chris Evans. People, fans. I would watch that combo. Um, I haven't, but I would. Anyway, so the the menu, uh, it's uh, it's also kind of in like it's very much in a eat the rich uh, vein. Um, a a number of uh, very wealthy. Um, individuals there's a, a very famous food critic there's a like a kind of um not necessarily i'm trying to think of like kind of a good like a nice not necessarily like jeff bezos like you know elon musk level rich but like um just one of those like kind of silent rich couples like this guy who's just very very wealthy um 
Are they old Yeah, money? John Leguizamo plays like this very famous uh, actor. You have these hedge fund guys. Um, and then you have Nicholas Holt and Anya Taylor-Joy. And you don't really know. All you can tell is that uh, Nicholas Holt is very, very, very into like food and food culture specifically. And Anya Taylor-Joy, uh, you can't really tell if they've been dating for for a long time or not you know not very long at all like what what it is but he's like she she's going with him as as his date to this reclusive island which actually shout out to savannah is asaba island right off the coast um and uh to eat at this restaurant uh where this this chef played by ray fines um has prepared like this incredible menu and it's one of these things where it's like oh my gosh you pay like you know, a bajillion dollars ahead, and it's this amazing dinner. Oh my goodness! And so, um, yeah, this movie sucks. Um, it's not good, <laughs> uh, and it, you know why it's not good because it literally tells you between the between ten to fifteen minutes in the movie what the fuck this movie is about, and. It seems like a movie that has a twist. It, tw- it twists, it tells you, it the twists twist. you at 10 minutes, and you're like, oh, okay, well, maybe it's... And it's like, oh, no, we have 30 more... We have an hour and a half more of this, and it's not going to change. <laughs> it's literally just going to do what it told us we were going to do at the 10, 15-minute mark, and then nothing is going to deviate from that, and the movie's just going to end. Well, if the movie spoils itself in the first 10 minutes, I feel like we can also spoil it. We're what doing that twist? right here. Spoiler... Yeah. T- Spoiler warning, unless you're just a baby and you can't, like, I mean, come on, I don't know. You could figure this out by, like, five minutes of this movie. But pretty much, you get there and the movie tells you, okay, so this this chef, played by Ray Fiennes, is planning to uh, serve this dinner. And it's going to be very grotesque and shocking and all this stuff's going to happen. People are going to die. And at the very end, he's going to, like, blow up the whole restaurant and kill all the people. Um, which I thought so. So he didn't really specify. I'm gonna blow up the restaurant and kill all the people at the beginning. That's what ends up happening. But um, I thought, okay, so he's gonna have. It's gonna almost be like like sinister Willy Wonka, and he's gonna have like different dishes, you know, curtailed to the people, and he's gonna like kill them in different, like very specific ways. But no, no, it doesn't. Literally, at one point. They bring everybody outside, and he makes all the men like run through the forest, like run away. And that these 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 other sous chefs and other kitchen professionals are gonna like chase them and chase them down. And so you're like, oh, there's gonna be like a somebody's gonna die out in the woods. No, literally all of them run, get captured, and then brought back, and then they continue eating meals. And I'm like, what the fuck is this movie about? And the, I know what the movie's about. The movie's about, like, you know, the the gluttony of food culture and how people, you know, just want the looks and want the prestige and want just, you know, all this stuff. It's not about, you know, the process or, or the, what the food is saying or, like, uh, anything about the meal or the work put into it. It's It's about, you know... It's about all the glamour and glitz and all this kind of stuff. And you're like, that's cool. It, but it's sure it's it, it's not that deep it never it never like it never you know moves past just got kind of going and these rich people man they don't appreciate what they're what they have you know they don't they're just they're selfish and you're like yeah okay and then what and they're like but these rich people though 
they're kind of selfish. And you're like, okay, yeah, but... And it's just kind of like, I described it while leaving. It was kind of like a, fre- a college freshman wrote an essay about like, you know, this is the culture we live in, man. Um, and then they made it into a movie, I guess. Like that's the level of that's the level of of like complexity that you're getting in the menu is is a college freshman who watched a YouTube explainer of um you know some watched some explainer of like some lefty YouTube video essay explainer and was like oh yeah I figured out the world. <laughs> um, <laughs> And the food's bad. So if uh, Confess Fletch is a movie that is uh, maybe formally eclipsed by a movie we'll talk about later, maybe this is a movie that is thematically eclipsed by a movie we're going to talk good way about later. It, yeah. No, this one. <laughs> and the food doesn't even look good. I don't know. I, I I was kind of I was kind of excited. I thought it was going to have a little bit more going. Like Ray Fiennes is fine. Is, is he's he's fine. He's good. It's Ray Fiennes. Like he's a good actor. He does a good job. Um. How's Anya Taylor Joy? She's solid. She's fine. She's she's working with what she got. <laughs> she's easily the most you know the most interesting character. She can, they kind of like veer off on you know her character. It becomes more of like like because uh, Ray finds you know cont- I guess I guess Nicholas Holt was supposed to bring this other woman and then he changed last minute and brought Anya Taylor Joy. And it's I, I don't even want to get into her backstory because like pretty much she's like a she's like an escort and it's just like this whole like convoluted thing, um, but uh, Ray finds his character at one point is just kind of like you know this is happening you know we we talked about how we're gonna kill everybody this is happening so like do you want to be on our side or do you want to be on their side. And she's like, and so then like Nicholas Holt's such an asshole that she's finally like, I'm just gonna go be on your side, even though I don't know what the hell that means. Um, and yeah, I don't. It's just, it's it's one of those movies that you know I'm sure people are listening and they're just like, fuck you, Zach, you don't know what you're talking about. But this movie is so <laughs> this this movie is saying something about culture. It's not you. It's not y'all. It's really it's not that complex. It tells you. This is what we're gonna do, fifteen minutes in, and then you have an hour and thirty minutes of movie left, and it never veers from that, and then it ends. And like, it's been so much fun since leaving the theater because every minute I've I've been away from the theater after watching this, I've just thought about how terrible this movie is. It is becoming more and more fashionable to make eat the rich movies. Um, and I can't decide whether or not I think that that is good propaganda. Like it's good for that to kind of be out in in the cultural mainstream, or if it's just being recuperated um, and, and you know made toothless. Yeah, this seems like it is toothless. This one's pretty toothless. Yeah, uh, you know it's kind of one of the. So it's it's it, I've been th- I haven't. Wa- Let me just preface that I haven't watched the show at all because I I just I don't really care about TV. Um, but people are really high on this Star Wars show Andor. Is it, I think it's Andor. Whatever. Who gives Man, a, and, who gives a shit? Right. I'm not about to watch a Star Wars show named Andor. Andor. Andor <laughs> what? Do something else? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Man. I, I hope it's... That's how you really pronounce got it. Him. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so like this, it, it's supposed to be like this very like 
anti-imperialist, um, like uh, revolutionary, like they're it, like it's being framed as this is not just like a Star Wars television series on Disney Plus. <laughs> this is a this is like a complex, you know, breakdown of how to fight and and deal with fascism. And like I saw somebody also make a point, like, yeah, but this is still coming from Disney. Yeah. So like you know, I don't trust them with that. You like even though you can be like, oh well, no, you know, so the the show creator and all these people are doing you're like, yeah, but at the end of the day, Disney's Disney's getting the money. It's like I said to somebody with the Black Panther movie, they're like, no, Black Panther, it's important. You know, it's it's important for for black culture to have this. And I'm like, I mean, I guess, but also at the end of the day, Bob Iger is getting the money from it. You know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Ryan... Disney is banking on you saying it is important. Yeah, that... it's important that I see this movie exactly so i'm just like you know so this that my, my main point is like yeah you can be like eat the rich but you know they're still you know they're kind of just going oh yeah no we suck anyway thanks for the check <laughs> so you know at least have something to say with it instead of a toothless piece of shit movie like the menu the menu don't see it um, all right, I've talked for a long time, but we're going to talk about the Bans- Banshees of Inna Sharon for a third time because it's our fucking podcast and we can do whatever the hell we want. <laughs> <laughs> we can talk about the Banshees of Inna Sharon. I also remembered while you were talking about the menu and, you know, critiques of the uber wealthy that I also saw Tar. We could talk about Tar as if we We've had only talked about, about Tar, tar once, so if you want to go. Oh, Okay. Well, let me very briefly chime in on the Banshees of Inisherin because I know you wanted to get into spoiler stuff on that movie. Um, I I like this movie a lot. It's the new movie by Mark McDonough, as people who listen to the show regularly have already heard twice now. Uh, Zach Zach did a great job summarizing the main premise of the the movie, uh, being about. Uh, Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson, middle-aged dudes who have been drinking buddies together for years. All of a sudden, Brendan Gleeson wants to have a friend breakup with Colin Farrell, and Colin Farrell takes that very hard and just insistently, doggedly pursues him and asks, why, 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 why can't we be friends? Um, And that's pretty much the movie. Um, It does, as Zach said, go to some darker places than I was expecting it to go, Um, more violent places than I was expecting it to go. It, it is pretty... Um, there, there's images in it that I wouldn't have wanted to see. Uh, just, you know, I'm not typing them into Google Images. Um, but it's really good. Um, and I think it might be Martin McDonough's best movie. I don't know. I, I need to rewatch In Bruges at some point. It's way better than Three Little Words Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Um, yeah, Michael and I, when we talked about it, because Michael said the same thing, and I'm, 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 I, I don't think I can argue because Bruges is is incredibly entertaining, but it's also like this one has a little bit more. This one has a little bit more going on than Bruges. Right. And then three, three. I really, I part of me wants to rewatch Three Billboards, even though it'll just verify that it's not good to me. I think that both Three Billboards and McDonough's other movie I haven't mentioned, Seven Psychopaths, they have it's this his brother. almost... Oh, that's his brother? Second week, second time in a row we've done this. Yeah, it's his brother. <laughs> I thought for sure Seven Psychopaths was Martin McDonough. Let me double check, because I, I correct We have him. to double check this. JK, it's Martin. Even if we double... JK, it's Martin McDonough. It is McDonough. Martin McDonough? 
Okay, so point stands. What I was going to say... God damn is, the Dunnas, man. Yeah. Both in Bruges and Seven Psychopaths have this, like, almost Tarantino tendency to um, dance across a line of, like, appropriateness or good taste. Um, like, the uh, Peter Dinklage is in, in Bruges, right? And there's a lot of humor about little people and, and prostitution and things like that. And, you know, I don't have a vivid enough memory of that movie to be able to quote specific jokes to you. But um, my memory of it is that a lot of that stuff felt like it was trying to be edgy for edginess's sake. Um, and I think that and there's there's some stuff like that in uh, in Seven Psychopaths as well. This movie feels like it has sort of graduated beyond that desire to just kind of go for really low-hanging uh, juvenile humor um, and instead the humor just kind of comes from the um, I don't know the the mundanity of people's everyday interactions and awkward social uh, uh, conflicts um, and I also feel like it is it, it does feel so real and so grounded despite the various places that it goes um, this place feels like a real place um, unlike three billboards which doesn't feel like America at all um, I believe in a Sharon is a fictional island though um, I googled and did not find anything but the movie um, but yeah I mean it, it really captures the feeling of a of a really small town uh, very well um, like a town where when people do have a friend breakup, they're just going to keep running into each other in public all the time <laughs> because there's only so many places there's there are There's literally like go. 10 people there. <laughs> yeah. Um, Which makes the friend go- breakup even better because it's like you broke... Like, what else are you going to do? You got nobody else <laughs> to talk to. <laughs> nobody has much going on. Nobody has a lot to do. Everybody's uh, at the bar at like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> right. It's like, ah, uh, it's late enough to drink i guess i'll go do that um and i guess the only other thing i want to say about it is like this movie has much more of a atmosphere to it than the other mcdonough films um and i don't know maybe it was just because i saw it when i was a little sleepy and it was a late show but i i found myself almost in that a picture pong where set the cool place of kind of uh floating in and out of consciousness at parts of it because it's just a very calm soothing movie like it's really funny it again has some violence in it but there's just kind of this permeating sense of like ease um just throughout the entire film you also have Um, uh carter burwell who does the score he's done the score for a lot of um Charlie Kaufman movies, but also Coen Brothers movies. He, oh, okay. he, he kind of has yeah. like this very subtle, but very like lyrical style. It's nice. Yeah, the score is really beautiful. Um, a lot of bells, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, so yeah, it's just kind of this aesthetically um, beautiful experience on top of being uh, very entertaining and uh, funny. Uh, it it is a movie that I I can't imagine many people disliking. I I think that people should definitely go see this if they haven't already. I and um, I also I still I think that um what's his face I think Barry Keegan's performance in this is like the town idiot kid might be one of my, the best performances I've seen in a movie this year. 
He's really it's good. Maybe it's probably my favorite Barry Keegan. Yeah, he's role. really good. Yeah, he's extremely good. Yeah, like know. just like so, just like a like talk about just like capturing, just like getting in a role. A particular type of guy. Yeah, he captures. He is that it. type of guy. <laughs> did Did you have anything else you want to talk about on this one before we? No, I, I think it it's forever? coming. I think it's going to be on HBO Max soon. Let me look. Oh, sweet. So I'm excited to rewatch it. Uh, I might toss some subtitles on there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, let me see. I think it's coming soon, so that people are like, "Oh, good. We'll have other. St- we have a, you know, more time for you all to talk about the Banshees of Minas Sharon." I'm gonna be like, "Well, that's what's happening." Yeah, it's gonna be on the what is it? The 13th. It'll be on HBO Max. So if you have not seen it, it'll be on HBO Max. You should watch it. And that'll be perfect. You can watch it with subtitles so you can understand Irish people, which I don't know. I don't really have much challenge with, I guess. It's kind of, I was thinking about it. I think Irish dialect is very similar to like Southern dialect and like really like deep, deep, deep Southern dialect where I think most people think you're just speaking gibberish and some. And I'm usually like, no, I understand what they're saying. <laughs> they say uh, feck a lot. I like that though because it's not really fuck. It's just fucking right. <laughs> I just like it. That's um, a nice ring to it. Did you want to mention anything about tar? Yeah, I will. I will talk about tar to the best of my ability. Um, this it's been a couple weeks since I seen since I saw this. It was like the second week in November, so I'm a little fuzzy on the details. And this is a long movie with a lot of details. Uh, but Tar is the new movie by Todd Field, who I know as the piano player Nick Nightingale in Eyes Wide Shut. I think that that's probably his most uh, famous thing he has done in the film world. But he's also made a bunch of uh, art house uh, uh, festival films in the past uh, that I really don't know very much about. Uh, but... Uh, Tar is a movie about a conductor, um, Kate Blanchett, uh, who's also one of the producers on this movie, uh, plays this celebrity conductor. And I don't know if there are actual celebrity conductors in real life. They mention Leonard Bernstein a lot. Um, so yeah. maybe that's, that's the most recent celebrity conductor that's we've the guy. had. Leonard Bernstein. Um, George Um, Gershwin I don't know but Blanchett is um, she's a conductor specifically of you know really well established classical music Um, I'm trying to remember who her main main uh, composer is that she's really into is it Mahler it might be Mahler Um, (laughs) that tells you all you need to know But yeah, there's like a lot of conversations with between her and, and other characters about um, more contemporary, uh, more experimental contemporary classical music um, that she rejects because she wants to reinterpret the old stuff in a new way. And, and she is sort of standing in for um, the old guard of an institution, sort of needing to 
uh, give way to to you know leave room for the the new the new uh, up and comers. Those young conductors um, that are just flooding yeah. the streets. <laughs> well, I mean, this is a movie about conducting, but it's also not really a movie about conducting. It's it's using the world of classical music as sort of a stand-in for probably film primarily because that's the world that Todd Field knows. Um, but I think you could sort of transplant any industry onto it um, because all industries are going to have problems of uh, gatekeeping and and abuse and things like that. This is also kind of a Me Too movie in ways that I don't really want to spoil. Um, But it's a a movie with a lot of um, room to kind of play around plot-wise. Darren Hughes, friend of the podcast, um, wrote a really good review on Letterboxd where he was talking about enjoying the thought of Todd Field writing this thing and just kind of following whatever impulse uh, took him. Um, So it goes a lot of different places plot-wise, and uh, there's kind of a lot of different levels of reality it's working on. Um, you're you're kind of locked into uh, Kate Blanchett's subjective experience, and um, she has a lot of uh, dreams and hallucinations and um, things that you know you're not really sure if they're true or not, um, which. Uh, makes for an interestingly like low-key surreal movie set in the world like this very uh, sterile world of classical music um it also is potentially a detriment to the movie since it is um a film about um exploitation and abuse um and the perspective that we're centered on um i could see someone arguing is like not the best perspective to center on um but uh, again, I can't really say a whole lot more about it without getting into spoilers. Um, I, I will say that I enjoyed uh, this movie. Like the, um, it, it is one that you're going to think about for for quite a while after watching it, and you're going to want to talk to people about. Um, I like a movie that um, sort of insists upon um, you mulling it over and picking it apart with people, um, but. Ultimately, this is not a movie that uh, particularly has has struck me in the way that it seems to have struck a lot of people. I think that this is the movie that um, won more awards at international festivals than, than any other movie this last festival season. Um, and it is not quite to that level for me. But I did think that it was very interesting. I liked the way that it kind of played with the runtime and um, and and played with like a lot of different modes uh, inside the movie, but still making it feel very cohesive. Um, but yeah, it's it's one that I can't. I I mentioned Banshees of Inisherin. This is a movie that like nobody's gonna dislike. Tar is a movie that I feel like I can't say what way you're gonna feel about it one way or the other. Whoever is listening, like everybody is probably gonna have a slightly different take on this especially because it is kind of a movie about uh perspective and it's like offering all these different um like pieces of evidence and perspectives for you to mull over um so you know you're gonna latch on to different things and and find different things compelling or 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 not or uh thoughtful or reprehensible or whatever um it's it's kind of trying to to come at this issue from a lot of different angles at once um and I don't know. I, I wish that it was a little bit more focused, I think, but um, I, I do appreciate it for what it is, um, for how like 
weird and wild and ambitious of a of a thing this movie is. Yeah, I'm still I'm still waiting to see it. Played here for like fifteen like fifteen minutes and then was gone. So. <laughs> they played the first eighth of the movie. Yeah, and they were like, all right, and thanks. then turned it off. Time for Black Panther two. <laughs> all right. Um, real briefly, we got we got some time. Um, we're going to talk about Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery. We'll we'll say we saw both both of us saw this at TIFF. Um, we're going to get some. We're going to get kind of spoilery though. So if you have not watched it since it only played in like fifteen movie theaters because Netflix is an asshole, um, you can go ahead and you know go to go to the show notes and click on the skip ahead to go to the conversation to uh, on to be or not to be. But um, uh, you know, it'll be it'll be on Netflix at the end of the year. So um, it is also playing, I think, really wide for a week around Christmas. So oh, people that, will that, get that, a chance to are see they doing it. it again. I think so. Oh, okay, well, that would be. They should just keep playing it throughout the whole month. But that's fine. Cool. <laughs> you know, let me, don't, don't let me tell the the you know the the company how to make money. It's fine. Um, the glass onion and knives out mystery. Um, we talked we kind of went over the plot last time you have it's uh the you have the returning character of benoit blanc the detective played by daniel craig um he gets uh called into this um friends friends vacation out to this remote island that's owned by um the elon musk's stand-in played by uh edward norton and you have this this variety of different Characters played by Kate Hudson and Katherine Hahn and Dave Bautista and Leslie Odom Jr. and all these other folks. Um, and then one played by Janelle Monet, who kind of is um, on the outs with this friend group, but was clearly very instrumental into how um, uh, Edward Norton's character generated and gained his wealth. Um, and so it's supposed to be like this, this kind of seclusion vacation they're going to play this little murder mystery and so because they're going to play this little murder mystery they invite you know they bring along the very famous detective and then bum 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 real mystery real murder happens (laughs) um and uh we were both real positive on this i mean that's i'm kind of i'm kind of bummed it didn't play anywhere near here in theaters because i would have liked to have seen it in a theater um it was fun to see it the time i did you know with a crowd with like a public screening crowd at tiff um the guy next to me was really intuitive going whoa um (laughs) (laughs) and so uh um but yeah i mean it's i don't know like where to start with spoilers Hmm. <laughs> like, do yeah. we just name people like that, things that happen? Like, I don't know. I'm just kind of like... here's a here's a very spoilery question. Well, maybe it's not that spoilery. Um, do you think that Knives Out three, which is almost definitely going to happen? I think they already. Do you think it will Netflix will... spot two? So yeah, there'll be another. Okay. One. Do you think Janelle Monet is going to be the lead of Knives Out three instead of uh, Daniel Craig? Instead of Daniel Craig, I think they signed with daniel craig for the three. Oh, they did sign with daniel craig i think yeah. that's the thing maybe they can be little partners together i don't know that could be cool they could have a little batman robin dynamic yeah. going on um 
Um, no, I don't know. But I mean, you would think the same thing with like Ana de Armas's character from the first one. I think that Janelle Monet is kind of just playing that role. That's true. From the yeah. first one. Mm-hmm. Um, but Janelle Monet is really good. So her, you know, I guess this is kind of the spoiler thing. You think her character is just kind of like this on the outs, bitter, uh, or at least that's how she's portrayed, this on the outs, bitter um ex-friend and in, in kind of colleague of this group um, who, you know, is just kind of calling them out as all these phonies who are just nice to Edward Norton because of his wealth and his power. They don't really, you know, they, they actually all hate him, but, you know, he's super wealthy and super powerful. So they're like, oh, okay. And that's why he's an Elon Musk stand-in. Um, but, uh, but then, it, it you know, it in, in, but then her character... Um, her character dies and you're like what wait no wait no no her character doesn't die well her character does die there's a there's a period before. of time where you think her character dies yeah but her character the the character that worked with them actually did die yes there's there's twists upon twists in this yeah, movie i'm which trying is to it's been a, it's been features. a few months so i'm trying to also recollect yeah. re- recollect what happened um and so Janelle Monet's character is actually the twin sister of the person who worked with Edward Norton's character and all them. Um, and she's kind of just coming back to get kind of pretty much get vengeance for her sister. Did her, did her, did that, that character kill themselves? Was it that or they just die? I think they got killed by somebody yeah. in the Elon Musk circle. Because yeah. she was going to that's uh, right, reveal that's right. that, like, she actually came up with his big uh, uh, profitable idea. Uh, no, Elon Musk guy killed her. Yeah, that's right. Sorry, we're we're all piecing it together on live here. Um, <laughs> but uh, I don't know. It's fun. It, the the it's twist really work. The twist works. The I I st- I'll have to rewatch it again. I still think that it takes a little while to get in. And like the first part of it is fun because you have Dave Bautista being Joe Rogan, which is really entertaining. Um, and all these characters are just kind of loopy, and they're it's a good actors like Catherine Hans, just great all the time. Um, but once you get into like twist mode, I think it pays off. And this is you know you're referencing it to a degree. Um, when talking about um, Confess Fletch and, and the menu, especially the menu is like this kind of thematic eat the rich type movie. And I feel like this is one both in both Knives Out movies that they, it kind of sticks the landing, not perfectly, but a little a lot more cohesively than something like the menu does. I think this this movie has a much more and I haven't seen the menu, of course. So uh, I, I guess I'm projecting a little bit. I explained the movie, whole movie but... to you. So you're good. That that sounds kind of flat, like rich people bad, you know. Um, and I think that what Ryan Johnson has done here is gotten real specific um, about the specific the ways in which um, these particular types of rich people are bad. Like he's all these characters are kind of standing in for different like temporary celebrities. Um, or at least at least celebrity types, um, if they're not a specific person, um, and I think that he just has a really good read on all of their idiosyncrasies and and the various ways in which they are um, like enabled and um, like latched onto by people beneath them. Um, the 
the whole movie sort of being a a huge joke about Elon Musk's ego um, and and his inability to uh, like and, and like surrounding himself with yes men who will only um, kind of uh, uh, feed his worst impulses because they want a little bit of the money that he has um, feels like both very. Um, apt and also more apt by the day as oh, he continues as some, to drive Twitter into the who, ground. Yeah, as people who watched this before he took over Twitter, it has aged yeah. beautifully. <laughs> it really has. <laughs> yeah, um, and like honestly, like I'm glad I saw it at the time I did because it makes this whole thing like, oh, good job on on this one, Ryan Johnson. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that Ryan Johnson has been accused of just sort of like. MSNBC style liberal pandering um, in the way that he handles uh, like political or contemporary political issues here. Uh, Well, that and being like very Twitter aware, like being very online aware. He's very online. He probably should log off. um, As we all should. As we all should. I logged off. I feel much better after having logged off. Um, But I think that there is some value to like keeping tabs on all of these little um interrelated uh you know personal dramas and vendettas that are leading to these like larger civilizational shifts um and i i admire and and appreciate ryan johnson for for documenting them um and and putting them in the supremely entertaining um and and well-filmed format um it probably is going to be a movie that will age poorly like uh like long term will age poorly just because some of the references will be lost to time um but you know i was reading a a, a review from peter labuza today who said that that was true for a lot of agatha christie's stories too like people just kind of skim over a lot of the contemporary details that don't really land for them anymore but the, the mystery itself still functions and I think this is a really functional mystery or like mysteries, the three or four contained within each other in, in ways that doesn't feel like it's just this cobbled together anthology thing, but a, a really intricately designed, um, you know, nesting doll or, or glass onion uh, that, that all just like comes together as a piece really well, I think. Um, the, I do agree that the beginning is probably the weakest part of it, specifically the ways in which they try to nod to COVID. Um, but when it's just that's these, we'll age these very characters badly. bantering back and forth, um, like I think that stuff is really funny, entertaining, even if we're not in full-on mystery mode yet. Yeah. The COVID stuff will age real. I, I think any COVID stuff is going to age very, very poorly in any movie and TV show ever. But um, I, I, but I also think you know I, I agree. I think you can kind of look past some of that stuff in order to in kind of you know. I think it'll age better than we think. I mean, Get Out. You could say it, I think is a movie that'll play really well, but also play, like has moments of it that are specifically geared to the zeitgeist moment, like you know just the whole the whole running joke of bradley whitford's character saying that he would vote for obama a third time like that feels like you know making fun of a very specific type of political person 
um, in this age. Who who knows if like that's something that'll read in like 20, 30 years. But yeah, who knows if we'll be here in 20 to 30 years. So that's, you know, just kind of roll with it, guys. <laughs> because, you know. Perspective. Climate change. Yeah. Um, all right. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to answer the great question of to be or not to be after this. episode 432 of Cinematary. In this part, we're going to be continuing our Ernst Lubitsch series with 1942's To Be or Not To Be. Directed by Ernst Lubitsch from a script by Edwin Justice Meyer and Melchor Lingle. The film stars Carol Lombard, Jack Benny, Robert Stack, Felix Brassart, and Sig Ruman. Acting couple Joseph and Maria Tura are managing a theatrical troupe when the Nazis invade Poland. Maria is having an affair with Lieutenant Sobinski, who suspects Professor Selecki is a Nazi spy. When Selecki is in possession of a list of members of the Polish resistance, the Tura's company takes action. Using their skill for impersonation, Joseph and company must confuse the Nazis and stop uh, Selecki from handing over the list. Uh, to Be or Not To Be marked Carol Lombard's final film. Shortly after production was completed, Lombard embarked on a war bond tour and was killed in an airplane crash in January of 1942. Many reviewers echoed the sentiment of the Variety Review, which noted, quote, It's an acting triumph for Miss Lombard, who delivers an effort... Uh, effortless and highly effective performance that provides memorable finale to a brilliant screen career. Uh, Lubitsch had originally wanted to cast Miriam Hopkins in the role of Maria Tura, but when Hopkins displayed uh, dissatisfaction with the role, Carol Lombard urged her to withdraw and was subsequently cast in her stead. Uh, according to a Hollywood Reporter news item, Miklos Rocha was originally assigned to compose the score, um, which, you know, dude's awesome. Uh, the script was developed both by Lubitsch and Hungarian writer Michor uh, Lengiel, whose original story was the basis for Lubitsch's previous film, Nanachka, in 1939. The earlier film garnered uh, Lengiel a Best Original Screenplay nomination. It lost to Gone with the Wind. Uh, Lube- uh, Lubitsch and Lengiel's comedic material was then put into script form by New York playwright Edwin Justice Mayer. Um, it was in a it was a historically fearful time in early or in late 1941 and early 1942, and audiences were not prone to easily accept a comedy at that time. Uh, things happening at this time included the uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor, the Battle of Moscow, the German invasion of Russia on the Eastern Front, um, the torpedo sinking of Brit- uh, Britain's Royal Navy aircraft carrier HMS Ark Royal by a German U-boat, deportations of thousands of Jews to concentration camps, the spread of fascism across Europe, and suicide 
or and Lombard's death. The title, uh, the titles "To Be or Not to Be," Hamlet's ex- existential contemplation of suicide in the play that resonated throughout the script, could have been rephrased as a decision-making a- uh, assertion to ambivalent Americans: to act or not to act. Lubitsch was heavily criticized for a- for producing a light-hearted film featuring Nazis in such irreverent lines as, "Quote." Oh yes, I saw him in Hamlet once. What he did to Shakespeare, we we are now doing to Poland. But Lubitsch, a German refugee, argued that spoofing the Nazis was the was an act of patriotism. Although reviews of the film were mostly favorable, reviewers were critical of the farcical manner in which the Nazis were handled in the film. One review noted that quote this treats humorously of the Nazis at a time when the new war news is not funny while others uh, variously noted that it is, quote, more grim than hilarious, and, quote, the tragic reality of Warsaw's situation is no laughing matter. Bosley Crowther of the New York Times noted that, quote, to say it is callous and macabre is understating the case. Mr. Lubitsch has an, had an odd sense of humor in a tangled script when he made the film. Lubitsch replied in a rebuttal to Crowther's review that, quote, I had made up my mind to make a picture with no attempt to relieve uh, relieve anybody from anything at any time. Dramatic when the situation demands it. Satire and comedy whenever it is called for. One might call it a tragical farce or a farcical tragedy. I do not care and neither do the audiences. When the Philadelphia Inquirer reporter also criticized Lubitsch for his, quote, callous, tasteless effort to find fun in the bombing of Warsaw and insinuated that this might be due to Lubitsch's Berlin heritage, Lubitsch responded to her in a letter. He suggested that her insinuations were propagandist by nature and based on, quote, false facts, fake news, World War II edition. Um, in the film, he noted the bombing of Warsaw is shown, quote, in all seriousness, the commentation under the shots of the devastated Warsaw speaks for itself and cannot leave any doubt in the spectator's mind what my point of view and attitude is toward these acts of horror. What I have satirized in this picture are the Nazis and their ridiculous ideology. Also criticized for his portrayal of the Poles, uh, Lubitsch noted that he portrayed the Poles as courageous people. On that note, let's talk a little bit about To Be or Not To Be. Yeah. One of my all-time faves. It's a fantastic Love this movie. movie. Just a just a banger all around. Like, Quentin Tarantino thought he could do it. He couldn't. That's how it is. <laughs> is it your favorite Lubitsch? Yeah, probably is my favorite Lubitsch. Mm-hmm. It's a movie that I think a lot of people start with, with Lubitsch. It's, the, it's a good, the one it's a good that starter. has, uh, for a long time, it was the only, like, you know, nice Blu-ray in the Criterion Collection uh, by Ernst Lubitsch. Um, but it's one that I think is probably more powerful if it's not the first one of his you see. Um, because for all the, the stuff in the notes that you're reading, Zach, about it being this really farcical comedy that makes light of World War II, like, it's it's way heavier than a lot of his stuff. Um, and I think those tonal shifts feel um, more pronounced if you know what his usual tone is. Yeah, it's it's just strange movie too because like it, it starts out and it has like these, the first 10 or so minutes of it are just like fucking hilarious. You have Jack Benny just in full neurotic mode. Um, my favorite part of uh, is when uh, they get the news that 
Germany's invaded Poland, and Jack, and this is just after the guy has interrupted his uh, his Hamlet's uh, soliloquy for the second time, and he comes in, he goes, "It's a conspiracy." And the guy's like, "It's not a conspiracy, it's a crime." He goes, "It's a crime too." Walking out on me for two straight nights. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and and it's like it's just really, but then like right after that, it switches to like it it almost becomes like a completely different movie for a little while, um, because then you get caught up in like this 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 naval uh, fighter who then goes to Britain, who meets up with this professor, and the professor's coming back to Warsaw, and like you get like all stuck in this intrigue, and you completely leave like the uh, Carol Lombard and and Jack Benny character for a long time, but then it comes back and it immediately picks up. It's like. But you know, it just—I don't—I don't know if many movies could p- pull off becoming something completely different for like ten minutes. Yeah, one of the quotes that you read described the the script as tangled, and it it does feel like a tangled script to me, but not in a way that is in any way negative. Like this is just a very unconventional story, very unconventional story structure. Um, another thing that you didn't mention was that we actually open in a play um, and you don't know that you're in a play until somebody well, calls it, cut it um, opens it opens out, like outside of the play and then goes into the play and then that that makes you understand why oh right the, because because yeah. initially it's it's um the character walking around as hitler in warsaw and people are just gawking at here's him. how hitler and came then, to warsaw yeah yeah and then and then the narrator uh, like sets it up as like back in berlin you know back in berlin or whatever and you think you're like in the nazi like offices but it's actually this this farce that they're putting on and then he challenges that he looks like hitler so much he could walk on the street and nobody would notice him and then it cuts back to people gawking at him and the girl comes up and asks for his autograph as an actor right Um, good you know good little bit and in the the scenes where we are actually seeing the play it's not it's not really shot like you're watching actors on a stage it's shot like a movie um so you're kind of in this as an audience member in this weird space where you're like not sure which narrative is like the narrative and like how how real are the images we're looking at at any given moment but um it just kind of keeps going down new avenues um it is this shaggy dog story that i I would say doesn't really um settle down into one particular plot until the second half um when the theater troupe decides they're going to use their acting prowess to trick the nazis Uh, But, like, there's this really long, complicated setup to that. Um, And, and like, all of those different moving pieces kind of serve as different sources of humor once he kind of just lets it loose. Well, because you have, like, this whole, we have to, we have to con the Nazis and kill this professor plotline. And then in the middle of the plotline, you have Jack Benny, who's constantly doing like whatever the hell he wants and and it becomes and, and you know he makes it a whole like oh this guy's cheating on my wife right. my wife's cheating on me with this guy <laughs> like in, in the middle of like no you need to like get the get the documents from this guy and kill him so that you know he won't turn in the polish resistance to the nazis and he's like but this guy's sleeping with my wife <laughs> um and it makes me laugh every time i love jack benny in this movie yeah the the to be or not to be joke of him coming on stage, starting the soliloquy, and then the, the officer standing up and leaving is just hilarious because 
it's it's hilarious all three times it's hilarious <laughs> it's hilarious all three times and it's hilarious in different ways all three times um like it's the same punchline every time but it's a different setup and it's like adding to the joke that existed before i, I guess i'm just describing what a running joke is in general but man well, ernst lubitsch could write a running joke but man, it's so funny every because they never seat the person off to the side. He's always like right in straight the <laughs> in the middle. And so like you have to watch and like the first time he does it, he like sets up the shot really well. So you see him like scooting by people and you see Jack Benny screaming at him yes. on this just screaming the rest of the soliloquy at him. And it's just amazing because he's like going like scooting through all these people. It's uh, it's just incredible. Another great um, joke like that is I know maybe your favorite joke of the movie, the so oh, they God. call me concentration camp air. <laughs> well, it's the, the funniest part of it is, is just when Jack Benny's doing it, pretending to be Colonel Earhart yeah. because he doesn't know what the fuck else. He can't improv. <laughs> he can't he's improv, got no improv yeah. skills, and so like he's trying to just fill time, and he just keeps going. So they call me Cotton. <laughs> it's just funny because you're just like, oh can you gosh. not fill time in any other way? Uh, and then, uh, like, when they eventually use it again, when the actual concentration camp Earhart <laughs> is given this information. And he starts doing yeah. it. <laughs> the other one that's funny is, is, is Earhart constantly, like, getting caught in some buffoonery and then yelling Shoops! just blaming his uh his secretary i guess for for whatever's going on the the other running joke that was killing me this time that i didn't i, I mean i guess i've seen it before is every time they somebody gets caught in a web of like oh you sound like you're not loving hitler as much as the other people oh and God. they start like and they start fumbling and then they just start going hi Hitler hi Hitler like, they're like they're all doing it at each other like like as this like macho dick yeah. wagging contest of like it's amazing it really captures like that element of fascism that I don't feel like I would understand having not lived through the Trump years and and seen the ways in which like Trump fandom is like this um almost young male youth culture thing where you're you're kind of like one-upping the other person on like how much you like trump or like how dedicated you are to uh the maga mission or whatever um it truly is because it's it's always every time they set up that joke and it's funny because the, the jokes works even better because they set it up the first time where they're doing it in the play. So you're just like, oh, it's part of the satire. And then it happens like four more times with that, with the actual Nazi oh, officers. Yeah. Um, and it's just, and it's so stupid because they just will cut each other off and just start hiling Hitler <laughs> <laughs> to show how much they love him. Um, and to show that they're not being bad Nazis. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's an interesting movie to watch i think um now because and that's why like my it's not controversial my opinion i like i think this is the best of the nazi like during world war ii nazi satires you know among like the producers and the great dictator i think this one's i think this one's good because i think this one's the best because it gets that it's not just you know showing nazis and like making fun of them really it's making fun of like the insecurities 
and just as as Lubitsch describes it, the ridiculousness of the ideology, and like that's what it's making fun of. It's not making fun, you know, like Chaplin's spoofing, you know, you know, making Hitler look uh, like this kind of um, cartoonish character. He's making fun and, of the aesthetic of Hitler, or like the the cult of personality, his stage persona, I suppose. Exactly, yeah. and like, and then the producers they're just laughing at. Um, they're just ha- laughing at like the ridiculousness of of the uh, of the Nazis. And this one, though, I think it's the it's the most effective because it just it's it's all the jokes are built on making fun of their ideology, which is really like the right. soul of what they are. Like that concentration camp Earhart joke. Like it's funny because it's like structurally funny the way that it it kind of pops up in the script in different ways, um, but. Also, on a deeper level, it is a joke that is displaying like the callousness um, with which these people will laugh about mass death and brag about their participation in mass death because it's just some, you know, uh, mark of pride in their uh, their cool boys club that they're in. Yeah, and, and like the, the you know the whenever they're interacting with like Earhart and the other especially him and the other Nazi officers, it, it almost becomes like this like workplace comedy type thing. You know, it's, it's not, it's not like the third Reich invading Poland. It's like, uh, it's, you know, the stuff that they're getting into, it's just more like, Oh, my assistant sucks or my assistant doesn't do what he needs to do or stuff like that. It just kind of just belittles, it belittles their state of power that they feel like they wield over people. I do think that the Nazis are still scary in this movie though. Um, like the, the scenes where characters are evading the Nazis have a real sense of danger to them. Um, like the moment when the bomber guy parachutes in and and has to do a lot of like bobbing and weaving through through the woods to try to not get uh, caught by um, a band of of Nazi um, uh, in um, like I don't know the name for it. Uh, there's on patrol patrolmen. Um, like there there that moment feels like it is a scene from an actual like espionage thriller. Um, and, and you get the sense that these characters could die. Um, also, I think that the the way in which they portray like the bureaucracy and the militarization of these these organized spaces the Nazis have constructed um, is really scary. Um, like when when the uh, the the scientist character the you know the British spy character mentions like oh it's it's hard to get in this building but it's even harder to get out. Um, like because we've kind of gone through all these uh, various levels of blockades to to get into that room, you do get a sense of that. Um, and and I I'm like kind of on the edge of my seat watching this movie. Like, how are these people going to get out of this? Um, because the stakes yeah, do feel high. Well, the, the there's a really good. It's a very small sequence, but there's a good scene when Carol Lombard's character is waiting for the professor to come back, and in that meantime, they've killed him, and they send Jack Benny dressed up as the professor to go there to retrieve the papers from his trunk to get rid of them, um, and in you know in transit, uh, this officer, the actual Gestapo officer, shows up. 
and is you know like where's the professor and she's like oh he's coming back and he's like well can i wait in here and like there and you in carol lombard does a really good job of like kind of displaying this like she knows like they're part of this kind of this whole production thing that they're doing but she like she legitimately like, kind of has this fear on her face because it's just it's a leering tall you know gestapo man in there who you know if she does one off thing she's you know she's it's it's there's no there's no negotiating um and like it's it's an interesting sequence whenever jack benny's finally shows up as the professor because you see just kind of how tall this officer is kind of leering over her and kind of her clear discomfort with being stuck in this room with this gestapo officer alone um she's and nowhere else to go also her there with the professor like he's essentially sexually coercing her um and and she's in a position where she can't say no uh because he is surrounded by armed guards like all around this building who are uh gonna do whatever he says um well she also runs into it again later with um with colonel Earhart, where he's where she he comes over to her apartment and is just like you know like literally trying to get her to run away with him and the only way it's broken up is the whole thing where the guy dressed as hitler walks in and Earhart thinks that she's going that she was she was waiting on hitler to come pick her up to take her somewhere so it is acknowledging the the kind of might makes right um way in which the nazis operated um and and how like you know if you were just outnumbered by you know all these armed soldiers rolling into your town you don't really have much recourse right like there's the guy working in the bookstore who has to sell books to nazi officers coming in and say heil hitler because these are the people who run the town now uh these are this is who's in charge um, and that's what makes the scene the the scene in the um in the theater so moving with the felix brassart character greenberg who pretty much sacrifices himself to let everybody else get through you know and over the course of the movie he's talking about how he really wants this like impactful role he really wants this impactful role like he just kind of wants that 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 role that people will remember him by he specifically wants to play shylock the the jewish lead in the merchant of venice yeah he does and so he he does the he does the speech from the merchant of venice um as the not you know as he kind of breaks away and these nazi officers corner him um and because he does that you know you don't see him again you can only assume what happens to him but he gives this really impassionate speech where he's weaving in this this uh monologue this soliloquy from uh the merchant of venice but he's like exuding it through this polish nationalist you know this kind of resistance to the nazis i mean it's a really moving sequence but then I mean, he does that and everybody else gets away, but, I mean, he's he's still there because that was kind of how the plan was set up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's also nods to other political activism happening around them, like the Polish resistance, the Polish underground, like blowing up Nazi buildings and things like that. Um, and, and the movie just kind of being a full-throated endorsement of like, yeah, fight back against these people any way you can. Um, the only way that these people can fight back against them is with their talent, their artistic talent, because that's just what they're trained to do. Um, but, um, you know, everybody yeah, kind of has to do something. 
I also like that it's not like a fantasy, you know? It's not the great dictator. You have Chaplin up there at the very end with the famous speech, you know, looking directly in the camera. Um, you know, <clears throat> uh, Inglorious Bastards has, you know, the Nazis burning and Hitler blowing up and things like that. Like, this one is not a movie that's, that's even though, like, that's what's... It's, it's a farce and a satire, but at the same time, it's not taking anything lightly. Like, they get away. It's not like they save the, the day. Poland's probably a little bit better, but it's not completely saved because of what they did. All they do but is it's kind keep of, a specific list of people from being executed. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's kind of just like the, it's like a, you know, a small job, but it kept the train moving forward. Um, and so I kind of like that as well, that it's not like this, like, big sweeping superhero-esque moment of like you know that they saved the day it's like no they just they got themselves to safety and they help save these resistance members who will continue to do what they can to liberate that country right again and i think the movie makes a really good case for its own existence and it being a movie kind of about resistance and about art and how art can kind of Uh, play a role in political resistance Um, because you know you you read a lot of quotes at the beginning of this about people being offended that this movie exists or that it was it was taking it too lightly or whatever Um, I think there are you know plenty of people who would say that this is not I don't know um, maybe that making a movie like this is not the way to address the issue of fascism. And and it's not... Well, especially making it in 1942. Especially making it in 1942, right? And of course it's not the way, like this is not going to be the thing that's going to bring down a, a brutal fascist dictatorship. Um, but I think the movie is going out of its way to make the case for like the value of art as a, as a way of fighting or at least... Um, you know, like uh, raising awareness of like how fascism works and how other people can fight it. Um, because of course there's, there's also, um, you know, the issue of censorship comes up in the first half of the movie where they get their, uh, play about Hitler, uh, shut down, um, because it's kind of considered too politically inflammatory. Um, but the threat is real. Right. And like something needs to be said or done about the threat as opposed to just like, oh, we're going to pretend this is not happening and and like not not say anything that would be too controversial. Yeah, it's you know, it's a nice testament to like just kind of nothing again nothing has to be some grand sweeping statement it can always be just kind of chipping away a a little bit you know it's that's something that disappoints me with like a lot of modern art whether it's television or or movies or whatever it kind of like it feels like it has to it feels like it either has to make a grand statement on something or completely like you know make this grand sweeping you know this is how we'll solve this issue it's always like you know there always has to be that at the end and and this is i like this because it's kind of nice because it goes yeah like you're not going to solve this with a theater troupe this polish theater troupe who's just kind of trying to you know get by it's again they just kind of chipped away at it and um there's nothing wrong with art that just kind of 
is a small piece in a larger puzzle. Um, I feel like everything, I feel like a lot of stuff now, it feels like it has to be, like it has to be meaningful. It has to say something. It has to be impactful. And then, and then you get, you know, just kind of similar to what we talked about in the first part, these kind of this, these kind of tasteless, just not tasteless, but just toothless pieces of art that are just kind of trying to, trying to, you know, ride the wave of being something important and something that is saying, you know, saying what needs to be said. Um, when it could have just been the small piece that just kind of chips away a little bit and, that's that's all it needed to do like we're not all we're not all the heroes at the end of the day sometimes we're just we kind of help out and move along i mean it's the 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 idea of termite art versus white elephant art right white elephant art movies being uh you know movies that seem very impressed with themselves for making these big sweeping powerful important statements uh, versus termite art being a little bit more small scale and personal and specific and and maybe more helpful uh, in its specificity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's. Yeah, and I think I think we just kind of it today we've lost that just not because I won't say not because like we don't have artists wanting to do that. It's just that the. Um, it's just that the 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 where we're at business wise with movies, there's just not an avenue for that. It has to be large and grand, or lost on a streaming service. <laughs> you know, there's just not that. There's not that. You know, it kind of is the thing that Ben Affleck has talked a lot about recently. Just kind of like those adult middle brow, um, sm- smaller movies that would do well. You know, in the in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, um, you just don't have those anymore because they're getting lost in, in streaming services. So I think you just have so much shit constantly all the time that um, you're you're like, I can't make this kind of small piece of termite art that just kind of says something and then moves along because I have to break through all the other shit to like, you know, be on the front page of Netflix for a few hours so that people will watch me. Um, and that just kind of soils the whole the whole message and ambition. Did you ever see the interview? Uh, the James Franco Seth Rogen. Yeah. Yeah, I, I saw it when it came out, so I don't remember too I, much about it. I have not seen it, uh, but I'm I'm curious what your memory is of that movie, just because it's the only thing I can think of in recent years that's like directly taking shots or at least like taking as its subject matter um a currently in power dictator of another country um i remember i think it's i remember it being kind of like it's kind of like inglorious bastards for north korea kim jong-il it's very like like he blows up at the end also i'm pretty sure Something happens to him, yeah, or something like that. But yeah, so, it's, yeah, it, kind of like a fantasy wish fulfillment. Yeah, it's very, it's very much in the. It would be it would be interesting to watch again, just because I remember it being very. It's just kind of making fun of like, oh. Look at how restricting and terrible this guy is, it, but then like the you know it also makes this commentary of like he has all of these. Um, he has all this stuff that, you know, 
makes to the very vapid James Franco character. Like, oh, this guy's actually kind of cool. He has all this stuff that I like, too. Um, but, you know, at the end, they have to kind of, like, overcome the dictator type thing. Um, and so I don't remember it being very perceptive outside of just kind of making jokes that, like, oh, at least you don't live in North Korea. And then blowing up Kim Jong-un. In this, I think you do see Hitler one time, and it's from behind, right? Him, him in the uh, the theater box seat, um, and he's presented with grave seriousness, um, as opposed to the slightly more slapstick way that the rest of the movie has has kind of been playing out. Um, and that didn't seem like the vibe of how Kim Jong-il was, was portrayed in the interview. <laughs> no, I just... It's interesting to think about... It's interesting to look at how America... Like, because this is 42. This is Hitler's been around for a minute. <laughs> you know, he's not new. Um, and it's interesting to kind of look back at the American film industry who, you know, like in 42, you got Pearl Harbor's happened, things like that. Like it's, it's kind of engaged, it's like engaged America to a degree so that even though reviewers are being offended by this, you can at least engage with the rise of fascism in Europe, um, on a on a on a Hollywood scale that you probably couldn't have five six years before you know five even well, just five years before, um, because like we talked about it last week, you have something like Borzegi's The Mortal Storm with James Stewart and Margaret Sullivan, that is that's actively engaging with it, but that's like not many people have watched that. That's a very much an outlier and an underseen movie, you know, um, for the most part. Hollywood wasn't really engaged. You know, this is all happening in Europe. That all, you know, they're invading Poland. They're invading Austria. You know, they're 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 marching around Europe um, and starting to you know attack England. Um, but America's not dealing with it in their movies. You know, we just kind of we we blatantly and so it's just inter- more of the point. And America's I, not dealing with it now. Um, yeah, I mean, we have we have our Eat the Rich movies for sure, but I don't think that mainstream american culture is like really um you know taking seriously what fascism looks like in america and and how that threat is kind of already here i mean the only thing i can think of honestly is unfortunately jojo rabbit which is an awful uh it does has an awful handling of you know what the evil of the nazis was yeah you know at the same time though um I guess I'm thinking now. I'm thinking of my examples, but they're both. It's not. They're not mainstream examples. There really is no. There's really no good. I agree. There's no good mainstream example of how, of how we're handling. You know, handling it. They have the the fucking Trump SNL guy doing the voice of Donald Trump in this she said movie about the Harvey Weinstein stories with the New York times. Like that's, that's the level of engagement that we have. We have the SNL guy doing it. I mean, for God's sakes, we had Alec fucking Baldwin playing Trump for a long, long time. You know, that's the kind of engagement we have on a farce level with, with him as a, as a figure. But 
Yeah, I just... I don't know. I think... I think the ant, at least to me, the answer is pretty clear of like how it's happened, or at least proliferated in a way that's that shot it to becoming more prominent. You know, I think it was something that was always around in America. Um, well, it was for for sure, but like it could be it could be qualled just because you just didn't have as many megaphones and with social media and all these other platforms, you're able to kind of megaphone it out a lot quicker. But I just, I think Hollywood movies in the people create, I don't, I just don't, I don't think they, they follow the, I just don't think they understand the, the roots of how of how this was created and caused and how the country itself has played a role and how it handles business and people and other things like like nobody really captures that and so like Lubitsch is perfect for this because he was living in Berlin through the rise like he understood why people latched on to Hitler and why it became what it was and so then when he's making this movie he's he's not you know God love Chaplin, but Chaplin wasn't there. You know, he 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 was he, he even as like a, from a British perspective, he doesn't understand. Um, Mel Brooks understands from like the Jewish perspective, but not necessarily from like the this is the roots of the ideology. He's more from that Jewish like um, you know the these these people trying to eradicate us perspective. And so Lubitsch to me is the most interesting because Lubitsch is going. I saw this rising. I saw this happening. I got away from it, but like I understand how the machinations work. And I think that one thing that hopefully we'll talk about more next week in Clooney Brown is he sees almost similarly to Douglas Sirk, uh, who is also a, a German uh, immigrant, right? Uh, he kind of sees the ways in which the core structural dynamics of fascism are still at play in more quote-unquote civilized uh, nations like America and England. Uh, I think Clooney Brown takes place in England. And like that is a movie about somebody who has fled fascism um, and is just kind of like seeing the uh, uh, like the subtle ways in which hierarchy is sort of entrenched into so much of daily life in the West. Um so we're not as far removed as we like to think we are. Um, and again, like it's going to look different in America than it would look in um, uh, Eastern Europe. Yeah, absolutely. I just, yeah, I just, I, I don't think that America, I don't think American media really does take like an insular look into, you know, how, how did this, how did this happen um, because there's kind of a there, there's a, a degree of an answer to it, and we're not immune to. <laughs> it's a lot of it is our fault, so it's. But you know, you don't really want to admit that. Um, but there's still kind of a role that that we play in letting this thing burn on. So, anything else on to be or not to be before we wrap up? 
Um, I feel like we have wandered away from just how funny and, and entertaining of a movie this movie is. Movie is, is super funny. It is extremely funny and extremely entertaining, uh, while also being uh, very smart and, and heavy throughout. Um, so, yeah, it's it, again, it's a movie you should watch after I think you're already familiar with Ernst Lubitsch on a certain level. Watch Trouble in Paradise. Uh, watch... Um, I don't shop know. around the corner watch shop a... around the corner yeah um but this this does feel like a, a really important statement from from lubitsch yeah and it's it is incredibly funny like just like top to bottom funny even even the serious moments there are funny moments like like you have the whole scene where um they think that they're gonna like trick jack benny who's dressed up as the professor when they find the body of the dead professor and they like so they like lead him in they're like why don't you just go wait in that other room and he like walks in the other room and there's the dead professor there sitting in the chair (laughs) and then he like and and then he figures out oh i have this other mustache that fell off that like replaces it god the fake beard scene is so yeah and like they're in there and he's just like oh that's not good for me they're like no it's not looking good for you he's like he's like i might he's like i'm liable to get shot for this and they're like you might (laughs) <laughs> and he's like and he's like well, let's just tug on a beard then he like tugs on the beard and they're just like and then and then the uh the other actors come in and like take him away and like rip off his whole beard and they're just and what what is it they say um you see a man with a beard and you don't tug on it <laughs> <laughs> such a uh, great script it's great um well, to be or not to be, it's on Criterion Channel, it's on HBO Max. I, I feel like that's probably the most accessible for people. Um, definitely, yeah, it's really good. I would, if you have not seen it, um, check it out and, be, and watch some of the other Lubitsch that we've talked. I mean, again, it's Christmas season. You can watch Shop Around the Corner. That's a Christmas movie. Um, Trouble in Paradise, I know, is also on Criterion and, and HBO Max as well. Um, watch some Lubitsch, and then watch to then watch to be or not to be. Um, all right, well, that'll wrap up this episode. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary, on Twitter and Instagram at handles at cinematary, and on Letterboxd at letterboxd.com slash cinematary, where we listed all the movies that we talked about in this episode. If you would like to support the show, head over to patreon.com slash cinematary. Um, we appreciate any sort of any sort of, uh, uh, of donation, whether it's $5, $10, $1, like who, it doesn't matter. We just appreciate your support. Thank you to our patrons, Cam, Chad Newsom, Candace Sisson, Ron Hayes, Teresa Marsathi, Tyler Chandler, and Titus Arthur. Thank you so much for your patronage. Uh, next week, we're going to be wrapping up our uh, Ernst Lubitsch series with, uh, I know, a big favorite of the Java Swaff House, and that is Colony Brown from 1946. My favorite Lubitsch. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. It's a good one. So... Another, another, another real funny one, y'all. Another one, another real funny one, yeah. Um, until then, thank y'all for listening. We'll see you next week.